0: If you'd like to follow along, today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter, chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11 and go all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit, your husbands to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves." They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect, as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of of the gracious gift of God, of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers."
1: I once broke up with a girl in Taco Bell (laughs) before our food arrived. And I ate the food after it did arrive and after we had talked. My friends, when I go back to Lubbock, they still bring this up a lot um, because apparently Taco Bell's not the appropriate place to break up with someone. Or maybe it is, I don't know. I was hungry for Taco Bell. That same year I had two friends who were dating and the girl had a younger brother who was playing high school football and so as all good Texans do, they were going to watch the football game and it was two hours away. They're about 15, 20 minutes into the drive to go see her brother play football and he decides as she is driving to break up with her while they are sitting in the car together. and the next five hours, they are together with her family after they have broken up. In both of those situations, they said that somebody, if not everybody, was very uncomfortable. About seven years ago, uh, Lindsay and I went on a cruise with her family and Lindsay had, Lindsay's little sister had a boyfriend at the time named Jordan uh, which is only funny because that's my name too um, but they, they didn't have a great relationship and we were going on a four day cruise and we left Galveston Texas, we were going down to Cozumel because everything I know about Cozumel before being here is that it's a resort town uh, but we were going there we leave and the day after leaving they decide to break up And so every encounter after this is so awkward and so uncomfortable. Sometimes we just find ourselves in these situations that are just unbearably uncomfortable. Have you ever been at a a game where somebody proposes on the big screen and gets rejected? Oh my goodness! can you imagine the discomfort they feel? I feel uncomfortable watching that. Have you ever been there? And this happened a lot more as a kid, so just take that into account. But you've been there when your friend is in big trouble and their parents aren't waiting for you to leave to get onto them. (laughs) And you're just standing there and you don't know what to do and you try to sneak out, but you can't quite sneak out. We've been there. It's uncomfortable. Some of you have seen coworkers get fired for something that just is a little too close to home. So the whole time you're just sitting there and you're uncomfortable and you don't know what to do. This past week, maybe two weeks ago, I don't know, a GQ article, and I'm not a reader of GQ, but I am a social media person. So a GQ article was circulating that was listing 20 overrated classic books that you don't really need to read. Raised a lot of concerns for some people because number 10 on the list was the Bible. We know that the Bible is not overrated. Can you agree with that? Hey, good. Woke you up. The Bible's not overrated. We believe that the Bible is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We trust the Bible. I'm going to preach from the Bible. We are formed by the Bible. The author of that article disagreed. And the reasons that the author suggested that this Bible is overrated and no longer useful is because, in their eyes, the Bible is racist, is sexist, and above all, it is boring. I read that article and a lot of the feedback on Sunday night. I was laying in bed and that's what I was looking through and reading and on Monday morning, I sat down at Caribou to begin working on my sermon for this week. A sermon for today. And the passage I agreed to preach on without looking at it, without doing a lot of study on it, is the passage that David was reading for us this morning. And as I remembered the article from Sunday night, I got that uncomfortable feeling again. I was trying to put myself in the shoes of this author, trying to understand. Like, how could you say that about the Bible? How could you say that about our scriptures? Like, do you not know God? <laughs> That's not our God. How could you say that? And I tried to think about that a little bit. Tried to put myself in the someone in the shoes of someone who doesn't believe in God and doesn't have any allegiance to Scripture. And as I did that, this passage in particular was just sticking out to me. I think that if you are that kind of person, and I assume most of you are not, but if you're the kind of person that doesn't have any allegiance to Scripture, that doesn't have any relationship with God, this Scripture would scream four things at you, and it would make you really uncomfortable. The first thing it would scream at you is that we need to submit to the government, submit to every human authority. And so, for the most part, like our culture's okay with that. I mean, yeah, we gotta obey the government, that's fine. But it doesn't take a genius to start thinking, well, in the 1930s in Germany, There was the rise of this Nazi party that was creating all sorts of problems all throughout the world that was doing awful things in the name of God. Do we need to submit ourselves to them? It doesn't take a lot to read the newspaper. Well, maybe it does. (laughs) We don't do that a whole lot. To look online and read about the Christians in Syria who are being persecuted for no good reason who are dying just for being people. And ask ourselves, do they need to submit to the government? That gets challenging in a hurry once we hear that. The second thing we would hear is that slaves submit to your masters. And if if you're one of these people that doesn't have a relationship with God, that doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible, I think you might hear in that, slaves, take a beating from your masters. In, in our eyes, in the eyes of people in 21st century America, how can slavery be okay? Our country has so much baggage with this idea that it makes it hard to read anything that just doesn't unequivocally condemn slavery. And this passage doesn't do that. This passage says slaves endure this. Third thing that you hear is, wives, submit to your husbands. And history has revealed that this passage has been used to keep women in abusive relationships because they need to submit. And if you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't have any reverence for Scripture, if you don't care what the Bible says, that just plays into the narrative, This book is old, it doesn't fit, it's sexist, and then you get the icing on the cake in chapter 3, verse 7, men, take care of your wives because they are the weaker sex. I have a feeling some of you are just uncomfortable hearing that, and we're in church, We're here, we revere this book, we believe that this book is inspired by God, and yet that's what it says. I read this passage with a handful of people this week, and a lot of them, and one of the first responses I got from a woman was, ouch. What do we do with this? What do we do with this kind of passage? I think that's a challenge for us. Because I think we still do believe in Scripture. We still believe that God is good. We believe that the God that's revealed in this Scripture, the God that this Scripture is pointing us to, is still the God that we worship. So how do we handle this? And so I want to walk us through this exercise because I think it's important for us to be able to articulate why we can look at that passage and not say that the Bible's racist, say that the Bible's not sexist, and believe that God is anything but boring. First thing I think we have to do is we have to recognize that we're reading someone else's mail. And that's kind of a crass way of saying it, but it's true. These are letters that were written to other people. And I know God loves this church. I believe that. I I love this church, and I know God does as well. But this letter is addressed to the exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And I have a feeling that if I put a map up there and just labeled random places that most of us wouldn't know the difference. This book, this letter, was not written to me which in no way minimizes its importance for me. This Bible is for you, but it was not written to you. 1 Peter is for us, but it was not written to us. I think if 1 Peter would have been written to Woodbury, I don't think the author would have said anything about slaves. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in our context We have a culture that refuses to honor God's command for us to rest. Why is he going to talk about slavery? I don't think his concern would have been braided hair in the age of pornography. With the issues that we face in our church and in our community and in our state and in our country and in our world, if 1 Peter would have written to would have been written to Woodbury. The contents would have been packaged much differently. But just because it wasn't written to us doesn't mean it isn't for us. It is. So based on the fact that it was written to someone else, we have to recognize the distance between ourselves and them. There are 1,900-plus years of distance between these people and us, and things have changed a little bit. A little bit. We're talking about the differences between eyewitnesses and I can go back seven generations in churches of Christ. There's a vast difference between our experiences. We talk about social structures that have changed in the past 1900 years, like, you know, America being a place. Slavery was eliminated in our country 200 years ago, almost, not quite probably closer to 150. The last 100 years, women can vote. All ethnic groups are equal. Talk about the difference between empire and democracy, where the, we select our leaders and these people had no choice. They had no vote. We talk about the difference between trying to survive, which is the situation this church these churches find themselves in, where they're suffering and being oppressed versus us, where we're part of the largest religion in the world. Talk about the difference between being extremely vulnerable to being snuffed out completely versus wielding large amounts of social and political power. There's a lot of distance between us and them. And we need to recognize that distance in order to appropriate what we read. But again, that does not mean that the message doesn't matter to us. It absolutely matters to us, as we will see. So once we account for the distance and differences, I start looking at the bigger picture of the book, the bigger picture of the letter. What is the purpose of 1 Peter? to encourage the people to stand firm in the grace of God as they experience trials and difficulties. that's important we keep that in mind as we read the rest of the book. We ask what has been said leading up to this section, and this is what Bruce was preaching about last week, that God has chosen these people, that he has named these people, that he has called them his people, and that they exist to proclaim his mighty acts. In the bigger picture, there's an evangelistic impulse that the author is trying to communicate to these people. Now we are getting somewhere. There are themes and motifs that are eternally relevant. And then finally, I ask this last question, and it's what is God doing here? The text is saying that God is going to be glorified and will one day judge. God desires that as followers of him, we should act right. God approves of us when we suffer for doing good. God desires that we be gentle and quiet in spirit. And I trust that if the Holy Spirit was inspiring the writing of this book, what it says about God is of the utmost importance to us. This is our God the last thing that we would do with a passage like this is just completely disregard it. Or even worse, assume that the GQ people are right. They are not. And so the question, the big question for us becomes, if that's the case, if we believe that God is not racist, that this book is not racist, sexist, or any other-ist, what is going on? What is the value here for us? I think there are three things going on in this passage that we need to hear. The first thing is this. These people are told immediately, do not withdraw from the world. Do not withdraw from the world in the midst of suffering and being ostracized, being treated as aliens and exiles in their own land, in places where they used to be accepted, it would be tempting just to leave it all behind and start over in a new place. Start over where they would be accepted as they are. And you look at the history of our country in particular, that's how our country was founded. People were leaving social situations in which their religion, their religious group was being persecuted, seeking asylum, seeking safety in another place. But in 1 Peter, these people, these Christians, these disciples are told, do not leave. But that, they're told to be among the Gentiles, to accept the government that they find themselves citizens of. That slaves are to accept the authority of their masters and wives are to stay married to their unbelieving husbands. We get in situations sometimes where we just think leaving would be awesome. The government site for for moving to Canada broke down after the election this past year, which is hilarious. People assume that they're going to move to Canada. It can be so easy just to get up and leave. And we know that, to run away from our problems. And in this letter, he is telling these people that they are not to withdraw from the world. You are where you are, do it. Instead of withdrawing, the people are to live in the world as God's people, to be God's people in the world. They are to conduct themselves in such a way that the Gentiles will come to glorify God. The slaves have this unique calling. And I just got to say this. God is not sanctioning slavery. Please hear that. You know that. We all know that. He is giving the slaves an opportunity to represent Jesus, to show the world Jesus, to suffer like and with Jesus, Jesus for doing good instead of evil. That's a unique calling. The wives whose husbands are not disciples have a unique opportunity to influence their non-believing husbands by the way they conduct themselves and hopefully draw them into God's kingdom to represent God's kingdom in their homes. The lowest people on the social ladder of ancient Asia are being called to live in the world as God's people. This is why I found that so shocking. The slaves and wives are the models for how the community is to live as Christians. That's what's going on in this passage. It's not God saying, hey... This is the way it's supposed to be. He's saying, hey, here's this opportunity. Live like them. In fact, I would argue that what 1 Peter is suggesting is that this is what it looks like to live out our calling as God's chosen people, as the royal priesthood. God is calling us to race to the bottom when we prepare our minds for action and set our hope on Jesus. I was stunned. I was stunned by this. In verse 7, uh, in chapter 3, verse 7, there's this little phrase, and on here, of course, it says 1 Peter 1.13. so disregard that. It's 3, verse 7. You almost miss it, and some translations do, but there's this key word in the Greek called omoios which is translated here as likewise, or in the same manner. And the word means that husbands are to do the exact same things that he's just commanded to slaves and to wives. That husbands are supposed to endure persecution. That they're supposed to endure beatings like the slaves. That they're to adopt the attitudes and the action of the slaves. They're to suffer for doing good like the slaves and be gentle and quiet in spirit like the wives. This is what he's saying. That the lowest people in their society are the examples to follow. That we are to be like them. And we should know that because it's what Jesus said. He said in Mark chapter 10 that whoever wants to become great must become your slave. It is a race to the bottom. As I read that passage this week and prayed this week and talked to people about it this week, I think the message for us is there. I think the message for us is that we need to become slaves of God. In fact, I would argue that what First Peter is suggesting is that that is what it is to live out our calling. Race to the bottom. So what would it look like for you to embrace that reality of being a slave of God and to race to the bottom? I think for some of you who are struggling in your marriages, it needs to look like you're serving your husband or wife in a way that draws them closer to Christ. It needs to look like you being selfless and genuinely concerned for the well-being of your spouse. There's a picture, I think it's two slides away. There we go. There's a picture that was circulating around this week, and I think this is what it looks like. It says, my parents have been... Married for 34 years and my mom is in the final stages of young onset dementia, diagnosed at 53. And my dad cares for her full time. She doesn't always remember his name but she knows she is safe with him. That is racing to the bottom. Let the way you love your spouse proclaim that you are a slave to God. For some of you that are in jobs that are less than ideal, I think it needs to look like you putting aside your feelings and your thoughts and your hurts and being the best employee that you can possibly be. It needs to look like you serving your boss or company as if you were serving the Lord. I had a friend who told me recently, the last thing the world needs is more Christian gear. They need Christians who make the best stuff. Christians who do the best work. That is living out the gospel. That is racing to the bottom. Let your work ethic proclaim that you are a slave of God. For some of you parents, it needs to look like you putting the spiritual growth and maturation of your kids as the top priority, even if that means you upset them. It needs to look like you prioritizing your own spiritual growth for the sake of your children's spiritual growth. We need to let the way that we love our children proclaim that we are slaves of God. And for some of us that are in places of power and social privilege, it's going to mean laying that down and connecting with people who do not have that, who have no power or privilege. It needs to look like deciding that what we have is not our own, but that we belong to God and we are slaves of God. Church, what's it going to look like for you to race to the bottom? For you to embrace this calling to be all that God has called us to be, to be slaves of God. I'm going to offer a prayer, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, we are in awe of your Son, Jesus We are in awe of the way that he has called us and loved us and moved us. God, we are so thankful for our scriptures. God, we we reject the idea that they are racist or sexist or boring. And we embrace the truth that the Bible is for us, that it is there to transform us. God, we we pray that that, that we will be people who are servants, that we will be slaves to you and that we will serve the people around us in the world in a way that helps them to see you. God, that is such a high calling that you have given us. Help us to embrace it. Help us to grow into it and give us grace when we fail. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.